The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads. Tonight I proposed, I started with the idea of talking a little bit about transfiguration for the very simple reason that actually we sometimes do some transfigurations. This subject is approached in our Tantra workshops. Especially in Tantra 1 we have a special teaching about transfiguration. It's also done sometimes by the Vira groups, by the Shakti groups. And um, it needs an explanation now and then, at least once every season, so that the newer pupils are catching a little bit of the meaning of that. Of course, I advise you to take the full teaching and the practice of this in our Tantra workshops, in our Tantra 1 workshops, where you will be able to get a more clear understanding. I will try to tell you where that comes from. The word transfiguration is a word which comes from the Bible, and it is the transfiguration of Christ, that Christ in a special stage of his spiritual life showed his real face. He shone through. From outside he was a man made of flesh and blood like everybody else, but inwardly he was what the Hindus call an avatara, and being an avatara, he was of divine origin, of divine nature, and as such, people could not see the difference, but then one day, he made it seen, he allowed it to be seen. In this way, transfiguration means, inside you are something else than what people see of you outside, and therefore, there is an inner nature, which is divine, which is profound, most people identify with their superficial layers, therefore with their personality, with their ego, and thus you can never see that profound nature. In Tantra, this transfiguration takes an additional dimension, because normally, in the regular life, in the spirituality which is not based on polarity, in the spirituality which is not based on the Tantric view of the world, then the the transfiguration is one. Both you and I are Atman at a certain level. Of course, most people don't let that shine through. Most people don't act from that standpoint. And thus we don't see it. But we can say when we talk to people, your real nature is Atman. Your real nature is the Supreme Self. As he puts it in the famous Bhagavad Gita, which will have the pleasure of commenting a little bit this year, Krishna himself tells to Arjuna, your confusion comes from the fact that you don't understand who you truly are, what your Atman is. And he says, you are on the battlefield and you think you are going to commit a murder or something, but actually Atman neither kills nor is it killed. Atman, so therefore... He says, all the manifestation is a maya, is an illusion. In this illusion, people die, are born, suffer, are happy. But actually, Atman is beyond all these. So the message of Krishna is, Oh, Arjuna, identify with your own Atman. Identify with Atman and go beyond appearances. That is a form of transfiguration. And in spiritualities which do not acknowledge gender differences, automatically that would be the answer of it. So the ultimate transfiguration would be, you are that, you are Atman, you are the Supreme Self. Shine through and show that. Tantra, as I said earlier, comes with an additional dimension. In Tantra, we look upon the divine essence of the human being, not as one, but as three 
as triple, like in the Trinitarian view in Christianity as well, and in Kabbalah, and in other occult teachings. God is one, but God is three at the same time. There is an inner division. The one subdivides itself in the two. And that division in the two, one and two, which are immediately lower than one, imagine like a pyramid. A pyramid is in the tip of it one, and then if you come a little bit down, you find a sort of diversity. The most simple, the first number which follows after one is two. Therefore, naturally, in terms of numerology and hermeticism, in terms of natural numbers, the first thing which comes after the one immediately next to it, is the two. Those two have been called in the Taoistic tradition the yin and the yang, and the sum of them, the origin of them, is the Tao. The Tao or the Tao is the one, the yin and the yang are the two. The same two things have been called in Christianity Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They have been called in the Kabbalistic tradition Ensof or the Infinite Light. They have been called various things in various traditions, such Chitananda in the Hindu mysticism, and in the Tantric tradition, personified as Paramashiva or Anuttara, and under it, Shiva and Shakti. And therefore, Tantra says, it's not only that you transfigure as one, but if you go a little bit lower, which is still very high, still divine, still in the sphere of God, still part of Satchitananda, still part of the divine immortal nature, you can still accept the two. The two is lower, but not low enough to be out of that grace. It's still part of that primordial grace. That's why in the Trinity, in the Christian Trinity, for example, or all three of them are God. They are just different ways or aspects of God, but they are all one, and one is all three of them. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as the Christian mysticism divides it. And that's why what I'm trying to prove through this introduction is that to refer to the two is actually not inferior to referring to the one. Some people would say, isn't it the most simple to go directly to the one, which is the tip of the pyramid, Sure, in a perfectionistic ter terminology, that's what it would be. But actually, the two are part of the triadic heart of God, part of the triadic aspect of God, and that's why they are also still divine. And the advantage is that when you move from one to two, you get something which makes it closer to you. You can identify more to it. It's much more difficult for the human mind to compose or to conceive of something which is one, because the human mind is brain made of two brain hemispheres, which are yin and yang. Every cell in the brain is composed of atoms, and those atoms have electrons and protons, therefore, therefore dual, dual in nature, plus and minus. And that's why the human mind, being part of the manifestation, can think only about things which are dual, about things which are single, the mind freezes. It doesn't see them well. We can say the word, oh, there is something which is one. But we don't have a feeling about it because the mind cannot encompass it. That's why looking upon the divine at the next level, at the level of two, is actually very rewarding because when you say two, if you say yin and yang, Shiva and Shakti, or Shakti and Shiva respectively, you say polarity, thus you say manifestation to a certain very high extent, and this is something which the mind can conceive. The mere addition of the polarity or of the gender automatically changes the spectrum and makes that experience much more close. And that's why it is more simple for a human mind to identify with or to Shiva or to the cosmic Yang than to identify to the Yin, than to identify to the I'm sorry, then to identify to the one, to the undifferentiated reality which encompasses, which contains those two. So therefore, Tantra has brought an ease in the understanding of things by looking at the polarity, and it has not fallen out of the divine truth yet through this. And that is why in Tantra you we acknowledge that according to the Vedantic way of thinking, you are that, 
that Atman, which is without gender, not male, not female, just divine consciousness. But at the same time, we acknowledge that at least in this life, in the way in which you reflect down here, you are actually reflecting one of the cosmic principles, the Shiva or the Shakti. If you are a man, you are born on the side of the Yang, you are born on the side of the Shiva. If you are born a woman, you are born on the side of the Shakti. And therefore, in Tantra, every man and every woman are Atman, and that's one transfiguration, show Atman, shine through with your Atman, but at the same time, every man is Shiva, and every woman is Shakti. Therefore, we represent some principles. This representation is, up till a certain level, a self-assumed role. Like, how self-assumed is the fact that you are men and you are women? Theory says, and that's a New Age theory which does not agree with what Buddha says or other grand masters, that everybody chooses their gender when they are going to be born. Like you are a man because you wanted to be born as a man. You are a woman because before you were born, while you are floating in the astral world, you chose to be born as a woman. However, we know many men who would like to have been women, and we know women who wish they were born as men. And actually, when we make a reality check, it's not always that simple. It's like that choice is made at a level which is very, very, very deep and does not correspond to our daily consciousness, to the way our mind is, to the way our temperament is. What I'm trying to say here is that it's, you can assume freely the role, I am born as a man, I will live my life as a man, but it's not always freely done. Like, you would say, oh, I'm a man, and what the heck, I will try to be a man. But when I was young, I didn't feel that way. When I was young, I was very disturbed, troubled, and I felt something was wrong with me, or in all that. So what I'm trying to say here, actually then, is this, that in Tantra, we are having a certain part of assuming the role. Of course, you have to assume your role in life. In the great picture of life, this spirit is distributed as Hamlet, and this spirit is distributed as Ophelia. And you can kick your feet and scream as much as you want, because God is not going to shift the track. You are born Hamlet, you live as Hamlet. You are born Ophelia, you live as Ophelia. You can't really change. We can say that in a certain way, every life is like a test. It's like a challenge. We can say that the masters of the karma or the Buddhas from Shambhala or God or whoever you want to think that would take such a decision, they want to push you in a certain role, like your soul is ripe for that. Let's see how you behave when you are in this role. And thus, you have a sort of existential test. Every life is an existential test because we have to find out what are we going to make out of the existential condition in which we are born. Either that means masculine, feminine, or it means even things which are much lower, such as poor, rich, strong, weak, and many other things can be there in the distinctions of life. So, back to our story. There is, however, an assume, a freely assuming of the role. And if you don't want to assume that role, then Tantra is not for you. Let's say you are a woman and you hate being a woman. And you come to Tantra, and in Tantra you are supposed to be a Shakti group member and to let your femininity blossom. And you wouldn't do that because you love to have lots of hair on your legs and waxing yourself is below your dignity or something like this. Then you don't want to do Tantra because you don't want to be recognized as a Shakti. You want to be recognized as Atman. Oh, you know, everybody looks at me like I am a woman. But you know what? I have a soul. I am more than a woman. I am Atman. I Right. Fantastic. Namaste. The soul in me recognizes the soul in you. You are not part of Tantra though. The Shiva in me doesn't want to have sex with the Shakti in you. Namaste. I can give you the Namaste, but the Shiva Shakti thing, I can't give it to you because you don't want to be my counterpart. You don't want to polarize with me. You want to be Atman. Pure Atman with no gender. And therefore, that's what you get. So, what I'm saying here, in Tantra, we, 
willingly adopt our role. Like in this life I'm born like this, God knows why, Shambhala knows why, my supreme self knows why, the Buddhas of the past, present and future know why, but fact is that this is my Dharma right now, this is my test, this is my trial, this is my challenge, this is what... So therefore I have to live it out, I have to live my life according to that. And thus, I accept my gender, I accept my role. Remember, you may choose not to play that role. You can step out of it. For example, St. Catherine of Egypt, of Sinai, she was actually in the Middle East, not right there, but the monastery of St. Catherine is in today's Sinai. St. Catherine, one of the early Christian saints, was said to be a genius of a woman, an absolutely brilliant woman, especially in intellectual, philosophical, and metaphysical terms. And as a woman of strong intellect, she really could not feel that respect, try to think, 17 centuries ago, when a woman was married with a man to a man, they were going into a pretty peculiar position, socially speaking or existentially in daily life speaking, because there was a hierarchy of the family and people were old-fashioned and all those things were there. And she wouldn't go into that subordinated housewife position to a man that she simply could not respect. And her respect was based on this inner spirit, on the intelligence, on the mental power, spiritual power, other things. So she constantly refused to get married. And in that society there was not a monastic institution yet, So, because women who wouldn't get married in the medieval times, in the Middle Ages, they would be sent to the monastery. You don't want to be married, go to the monastery, it's fine. But... Uh, in those days, this option did not exist. And her father kept pressing on her and saying, you are getting older and older by the day, and you don't have a man. And it's customary in our society that a woman should be under the protection of a man. And she kept on saying, well, I don't respect any man. I don't have see anybody strong enough for me. And of course, the father said, eh, that's bollocks. And, you know, like, just lower your standards a little bit and just <laughs> behave like everybody else. And she could not. And eventually her father made a contest. They made a public contest in which they said that whoever can defeat St. Catherine in oratoric and metaphysical discourse shall be her husband. And lots of scholars and smart people came and they could not. She was smarter than all of them or at least comparable on a comparable level. Nobody could really outrun this incredible woman. And then in the end she still decided not to. And in the night she had a dream where an angel descended to her and brought her a ring which she found physically next morning actually and told her that the only man for her is Jesus because that's the real strong one that she will never be able to overrun. So she became the bride of Jesus and this is the beginning of a tradition in Christian monasticism that all the nuns get married to Jesus. All the nuns actually wear a physical ring by which they are the brides of Jesus. So in this way, what I'm trying to say here, you can step out. You don't want to be somebody's woman because you have this story that being a woman is uh, debasement for you. Then become the wife of Shiva. Become the wife of Jesus, become of the wife because you probably don't need a man who belongs to this planet. You belong something which is better than anything that exists on this planet. So you can step out of the role. I don't want to be looked upon as a woman. I want to be looked as a spirit. No. So did Mananda Mai, who was a very powerful woman, and she got married by the family with a guy called Bolanat, and that guy eventually became her disciple instead of becoming her husband. The list could continue. There are women who stepped out of this polarity and either they polarized with something higher, like Mirabai. Mirabai could not stay married to her husband and she declared herself the wife of Krishna, the lover of Krishna. She was worshipping Krishna. She slept with the Krishna statue in her bed. All her love was for Krishna because the way she felt it, no man was good enough for her. She was too smart, too strong. To That may be true. Or that may be a phantasmagoric self-impression. If it's a phantasmagoric self-impression, then your place is in the mental hospital. If it is true, then you are indeed a saint and a very special spirit. But the question is that you do not choose 
the gender for defining yourself. In the moment when you choose the gender, then you can follow a path which contains gender. There are many women, for example, just because I took the example with a woman who doesn't like being seen as a woman, doesn't like being treated as a woman. Sure, Miss Alexandra David Neal was going alone through Tibet and was practicing magic and I don't know what, and even her face changed. She looked like a man. She looked tough. That's not the kind of woman that you want to make love to. It's a woman who is a philosopher or this or that, but she is not into gender. She wants to be known as Atman, not as Shakti. In Tantra, the Tantrics put up with their gender in the present life. And they say, men say, since I'm born as a man, I'm born to be Shiva. Since I am a woman, I'm born to reflect, to incarnate Shakti on this planet. And thus, I'm saying again and again, it's something which you have to embrace. If you don't start, first of all, from the philosophical decision that that's what I want to do, then if you still have qualms in the heart of your hearts about if you really want to be a man or if you really want to be a woman, it means you have some self-identity problems. You need probably more yoga, more meditation, more self-inquiry until you might discover at some point what is good for you, what is the polarity or the transfiguration which fits with you. Therefore, this being said, now we are going to this transfiguration, this transfiguration according to the gender. And this transfiguration, as I tell to people, it represents God's truth. Like this is God's truth. In this universe, there exist two fundamental oceans. An ocean of plus and an ocean of minus. Which each one of them is half of the great ocean of Anuttara, Atman, the pure spirit. But half of the infinite is still very much infinite. Therefore, those two oceans are still on the size of the infinite. They are divine. They belong, they pertain to the sphere of divinity. And those two oceans of masculinity and femininity, of yang and yin, they manifest in everything which exists. Everything in this universe, from the trigrams from, or hexagrams from I Ching, the, the book of fate, this Chinese book of divination, and finishing with a proton and electron in a simple atom. Everything from galaxies to mythology... Everything is plus and minus, everything is dual, everything has a gender. And that's why Shiva and Shakti as principles, they, they are together in an atom. In an atom, a mystic can see the dance of Shiva and Shakti. Shiva stays in the middle as the proton, Shakti orbits happily as the electron, and the polarity and the attraction is there. It just requires a special way of looking upon reality. It requires a way of looking poetically or metaphorically. Because in transfiguration, you have to look upon things analogously. The human being is a small universe. The human being is a microcosm. Well, you can't see it when you look like this. A very skeptical person says, you must be kidding. A human being is a bunch of flesh and blood and bones. What do you see? The universe. That's because you are not looking deep, you are not looking symbolically, you are not looking metaphysically at that reality. But at a deeper reality, seers can see that the human being is the universe. Seers can see that an atom is Shiva and Shakti. Seers can see that yin and yang are the dance of Shiva and Shakti that generates the universe. And thus... It's all a matter of having the eye for it. This eye for it, you have it usually in an artistic manner. Sometimes artists, people who have visions, people of transfiguration, sometimes do have this sort of vision. For example, a poet looks at, his, at a woman and says, your eyes are like deep lakes in the forest at night. And every cynical or materialistical person without any dream in their brain or heart would say you cannot really compare eyes to lakes. It's a very lame comparison. <laughs> not for the poets, because the poets are not looking at the scientific side of that comparison. 
the poets are looking at the a feeling. To say that your eyes are deep as lakes, it gives a feeling. It refers to a certain feeling. To say to somebody, your hair is like undulating wheat fields in the summer wind, is also not exact agriculturally or medically, but it is something which represents a vision. It's a vision. It's a poetry. It's an analogy. And you can see it that a good cinema maker, like you take a good director and he sees a woman in the wind and the wind is blowing and her hair goes like this and then the camera moves and the wheat field in the background also moves like this. Like the, it's a matter of having vision. So transfiguration is like you are an artist, a poet. It's like you have vision. It's like you see through. It's like you are drunk. It's like you have made love a lot and the endorphins have opened your brain. But the point being that it is a vision which some people are born with to various degrees and some people develop it. They can simply develop it through practice. And that is why transfiguration is a sort of a way of looking upon the world. Rimbaud in one of his poems, says, One night I seated beauty on my knees. And the commentator, who is from a tantric standpoint an idiot, says, he speaks about Veronica, his Polish girlfriend. It's like, boo, go home and sleep, you are an idiot. <laughs> One night I set the beauty on my knees. He doesn't speak about Veronica. He's drunk with it. And when he looks at Veronica, he sees beauty as a cosmic principle. Or the same, Rembo would go and say incomprehensible verses where he speaks about a woman and where he says in approximate translation, because it's very difficult to translate French poetic language in English, he says, oh, the omega, the omega like the last letter of the Greek alphabet, alpha and omega, oh, the omega, the violet ray in your eyes. Who would look at a woman and mention omega, the violet ray in the eyes, which is nothing visible. Women generally don't have violet eyes, except maybe one in a hundred million or something. And therefore, what is he talking about? This is the vision of a madman. This is a vision of an artist. That's why many things in Tantra are related to art, to poetry, because transfiguration is inevitable in art, poetry, visual arts, cinematography, circus. Any of the fine arts would automatically involve a transfiguring view that exists in modern arts because we live in Kali Yuga, we even have the opposite of transfiguration. It's called the art of ugliness, the aesthetics of ugliness and of all sorts of pragmatic things. Somebody makes a thing made out of Coca-Cola cans and he calls that art. And it's called whatever, art. Some of you are better educated in the history of arts than me and you would know what that is called. It's a realistic art, techno, art, this. But some of it is not beautiful. It's not aesthetical. Like, and people say, yeah, but still it's original. Sure, it's original. Many things are original. Every time you lay a turd, you can lay it in an original way. It doesn't mean automatically that it's beautiful, good, pleasurable, aesthetic, or divine. And therefore, of course, in the modern world, we have lots of confusion about the function of the art, if art is supposed to be aesthetical or anything goes. And thus, this subject is way deeper. We might approach it some other time. It goes astray from our transfiguration thing. But in this way, there can exist a sort of anti-transfiguration, where everything you want to do is to vilify yourself, to ugly yourself, to do yourself more demonic, more... No, you are wondering, some of the young people before the emo generation and even during this emo generation of today, they go with those Jamaican trousers hanging down to their knees and with the cleft of their butt visible already and, and they think they are cool. 
And everybody looks at them and says, this is a bunch of wimps, you know, you can eat seven of them on one piece of bread. They are not men, they are just caricatures, you know. Like, what sort of transfiguration is this? What do you want to look? Of course, it's a form of protest. But you are protesting, why? What do you want to demonstrate with it? That this doesn't matter or that doesn't matter. But is it aesthetical? Is it clean? Is it spiritual? Is it constructive? Is it... Because protest can be absurd protest. I want to protest against something and I go and set the building of the government on fire or start setting every car on the main street on fire. So what's the big deal? It's called anarchism. No, everybody can go and destroy something as a sign of protest. But is that necessarily constructive? Perhaps in some situations like the partisans, the resistance movements and others, they would have a point into it in fighting the enemy. It's a form of warfare. But otherwise, it can also be an absurd form of protesting. So back to our story. There is a transfiguration, never goes in that direction. Transfiguration goes in the direction of divinization, going deeper, seeing the profound aspect. One man looks at his woman and says, your eyes sometimes are flabbergastingly deep. I see like I can lose myself in your eyes. I Sometimes I'm almost like afraid to look too much in your eyes because it's like I'm gone. And another man looks at his girlfriend and says, you have a big black mole on your right cheek and it pisses me off every time I look at it. And on top of everything, you have a big ugly hair sticking out of it. And this is exactly what transfiguration is not. You choose to see... Something which is not there. In India, they got such a transfiguration that they transfigure sometimes even the hideous. There is a goddess in the Nepali Hindu lore which is, which is called Kubjika. And Kubjika is a goddess that is malformed. It is a goddess that is not elegant. She is like crooked, stooped, with maybe a leg shorter or something. She looks like a person that has a severe physical handicap. So she is hideous. But behind that hideousness, you have to see something which is divine. And therefore, transfiguration basically means to see this divine nature. Transfiguration in Tantra is a goal and it is a method. It is a goal because every Ramakrishna would reach to that, would want to see that. Ramakrishna could see in his wife, either she was beautiful or not so beautiful, Kali, the mother of the universe. Funnily enough, when I look at Sarada Devi, I can see very clearly from the standpoint of the Tantric tradition that she did not have a dominant resonance with Kali, except through the many meditations which she did, and Ramakrishna did on her. But still, of course, in the Bengali environment, Kali means many things. It's an abuse of names there. Even Tara is included as a form of Kali. Even Srividya is included as a form of Kali. So there are all sorts of Indian slight deflections or deviations of the tradition. The point being that Ramakrishna reached at the point where looking at a woman, even looking at the prostitutes from the bazaar, from the red light district, he would see Kali. He would see the goddess at the same time. So, uh, transfiguration is a goal. If you can do that, you have reached enlightenment. But at the same time, it is a method. Because even when you don't see it, you know intellectually that it's there. And if Yogananda would be in your stead, he would see it. And therefore you can try to see what would Yogananda have seen. What would Ramakrishna have seen. My spirit is not elevated enough. I don't see this strong enough. So I'm trying harder. That's why... Transfiguration is a basic tantric practice and it brings the human beings at the level of the higher chakras, at the level of a higher vision. Every man looking at a woman trying to see what aspect of Shakti shines through her. 
every woman looking at a man, trying to see the Shiva aspect shining through him. Shining stronger, shining more poor, sometimes shining with big problems, with some, even some distortions. Women who don't understand their own deep femininity, men who don't understand their own masculinity. Like, but it's still uh, there. You can see it even when the others couldn't see it. You can imagine that the prostitutes from the red light district in Calcutta did not see clearly their divine feminine nature. Ramakrishna, however, could see it although he was an outsider from their standpoint. And that is why transfiguration is a goal, like you want to meditate, you want to rise your kundalini, you want to make love, you want to do whatever you do, until you can see this reality. At the same time, transfiguration is a method. Even when you can't see it, you can try to see it 3%, 4%, 6%, a little bit. Every day, maybe, a little bit more than in the previous day, and slowly, slowly, progress in your capacity of transfiguration. This being said, the transfiguration, the most simple way of doing transfiguration is trying, like, I know that I am Atman. Somebody, like in Vedantic meditation, says, you are Atman. Who are you? Who am I? I am consciousness and bliss without form. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. So how do you do that? Simply by trying. Simply by repeating it. Simply by inoculating into your own mind this belief. Simply by awakening to this reality. So if a man says, this woman is Shakti. If a woman says, this man is Shiva. How will they do it? In the same way, you simply rise the energy, sublime, work on the high chakras, repeat it, try to convince yourself, try to see even empirically, and your efforts will be rewarded with some degree of success. Some of you are more imaginative, more rich in your visualization, maybe a little bit even hysterical in the good meaning of the word hysterical, like you can make things happen because your imagination can be whipped up to a frenzy. And some of you are more dry, more skeptical, more cold, more down to earth. And you repeat it, but it happens more slowly. It really takes time before you can really go into that poetic, into that artistic state of mind. Therefore, transfiguration, because it works spontaneously, it is done spontaneously, there are used in the tantric tradition lots of props, like a shivalinga for Shiva, or if not a shivalinga, just the shape of the dome of shivalinga, or if not then, then a triangle pointing up, representing the masculine as opposed to the feminine. And symbols can be used. Lots of other props can be used, including the fact that, for example, Shiva has an animal that symbolizes him, the bull. In India, which is a cow culture type of country, without any pejoration to it, there is not uh, any mockery involved into this, simply old India, Vedic India, was based a lot on this cow culture, which gave milk and butter and all those basic products of the Indian Vedic culture. There, of course, one of the most visible animals was the bull. And the bull is a real intense animal when it comes to sexuality. And because of that, of course, you sometimes compare a viril man to a bull. For example, in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna is sometimes called by Krishna... By Krishna himself, he says, O Arjuna, O thou who are like a bull among men. Like, you are twice as virile as any dude around. You are a big man. You are a very manly man. And the bull, which is a symbol of rural fertility and muscular strength and sometimes fierce masculinity, raw masculinity, is the carrier of Shiva which automatically is a symbol. It speaks allegorically. It speaks analogously to us. Shiva is the harbinger. Shiva is the, the steward of masculinity, even of the raw masculinity. Any form of masculinity 
is coming from Shiva. So in this way, there are symbols which are not geometrical symbols or allegories. They are symbols which are agricultural symbols, human society symbols, and others. But all in all, these symbols were used to increase the power of transfiguration of the human being. Take it like the samurai of Japan. They were not in the same cow-oriented tradition of India, but the samurai, like the Vikings of Scandinavia, when they went to war, they had these helmets with horns on them. It's a little bit like I'm a bull among men. I'm going to kill my enemies. I'm going to squash them. It's supposed to frighten the enemy. Lots of virility symbols. Or look at the haka of the Maoris, of the All Blacks today, the rugby team of New Zealand. It's the same kind of spirit, like we're going to squash you. We are strong. We are dangerous. Don't fuck with us. It's a sort of expression of an intense virility, of an intense masculinity. That's why all sorts of symbols, even mudras, body positions, no, like you can take some positions where your body expresses something. It's like a dance. This is the connection between tantra and dance and acting and the positions, the mudras, the attitudes of the body. And thus... Of course, lots of things from geometrical yantras to positions of the body can be used for transfiguration. For example, the shaktis in the shakti group, they assume some positions, which sometimes can be very strong positions, but still they are not masculine. They are positions of goddesses on Hindu temples, on the frescoes of various Hindu temples, because even the feminine is powerful. Nobody can say that Kali is not powerful. Actually, Shakti means power. So the meaning of masculinity is not even power. In a way, like when you look at Shiva, the bull, there is the idea of power there, but it's more like that is the Shakti of Shiva giving him the power, and still his essence is deeper, more subtle. The point is that Tantrics try to see this, because every time when a man makes love to a woman, or is simply attracted to a woman... Every time when bees pollinate the flowers, every time when birds have sex, every time when an electron spins around in the kernel, the proton of an atom, every time Shiva makes love to Shakti in myriads of forms and in myriads of places, but it's still all the great dance of Shiva and Shakti. And that is why this aspect can be seen or not. This aspect is what represents the reality. In this bed, you have Oscar having sex to Mary, or to olive oil, if, you don't, if Mary is too much of a fre- frequent name. And when Oscar has sex to olive oil, those being two cartoon characters, Shiva makes love to Shakti through their bodies. Oscar and olive oil are two waves on two different oceans, one on the ocean of masculinity and one on the ocean of femininity. And Oscar comes and goes, like every wave in this world, every wave has a limited existence in space and time, but Shiva, the ocean, never goes away. It's eternal. That is why the funny thing is that when Oscar makes love to Olive, at the same time, Shiva makes love to Shakti. And which one of these two aspects is more real? Shiva and Shakti, because that one is eternal. It lasts. It's divine. It's part of the divinity. Oscar and Olive are just two transient aspects of masculinity, respectively of femininity. And they happen to meet in this life and to polarize each other. But at the same time, they will not last forever. It's not significant. How can you make something last forever? Remember the beautiful Tibetan movie called Samsara, in which the initial question resumed in the end is, how do you stop a drop of water from ever drying up? And the drop of water is you and I. It's the ego, the person, the creature, the limited being. And everybody wants to reach immortality. Everybody is afraid at some level or another 
of death. If you are not afraid of death, then you are afraid of the endless chain of reincarnations, of samsara. Because then you say, okay, I know that when I die, I don't die, but for thousands and thousands of lifetimes, I'm going to be stranded in this soap opera, and I don't know what to do, I can't stop it. This is madness. So, the fear of death is not directly necessarily a fear of death. It can be something else. But the point being, many people before you ask themselves the question, how do you stop a drop of water from drying up? And the answer on the back of the stone is marvelous. Because it says, by throwing it back into the ocean. That's the only way to stop, to stop a drop of water from disappearing. Unless it merges with the ocean, it will vaporize. It's just a matter of time. And that is why the question is, how do we become immortal? By identifying with the immortal ocean from where we come. If you are a non-gender inclined type of person, you identify to Atman directly. If you take into account the gender, then you identify with Shiva and Shakti, the two, not the one, which is more accessible. It's more easy for us to understand it and to relate to it. And thus, of course we are hypnotized by our own egos. I am Oscar, I am Olive, Sure, I do this, I don't do that, this makes me happy, this doesn't do this for me, don't do that for you, this and that. But the point is Shiva and Shakti. I represent Shiva, either I like it or not. I am a wave on the soul of mas- on the surface of masculinity. So is the woman. And that is why, why not respect that? Since that's God's truth. That's who we actually are. It is only ignorance and blindness which makes me see like, oh, I'm just Oscar. That's who I am. Don't tell me anything else. You are not. It's as Paul, the Apostle of Christ, says, either we know it or not, we all belong to God. Even the atheists, even the Satanists, everybody, because we did not create ourselves. We are creation not creators in terms of this life and this universe. And that is why the idea is a person can say, I don't like to be looked upon as Shakti because I like being Olive. That's just a very strong ego. It's a person who is in love with her personality. It's a person who thinks she is God's gift to the earth. A person who thinks that her ego her little ego will impress anybody ever and will exist forever. All these people are on the brink of a severe disappointment because our egos are grains of dust in this universe. They don't really mean anything when you look at the stars and at the planets and at the time in which the universe exists, at those scales of time. Our egos are waves. Who pays attention to a wave except temporary? Like you say, wow, what a beautiful wave has no other meaning than it's like a flower which blooms and then it goes. It's not eternal, it's transient, it's ephemeral, so is every human being. So we can say how beautiful Oscar is. There is no more to it, because the only significant thing there is, my God, the ocean constantly produces such beautiful waves. Shiva produces such wonderful Oscars. Shakti produces such wonderful olives. That's who we really love. We love the ocean, not the wave. It's a very superficial way of looking at that in this way. But some people feel hurt in their ego. I met women being in Tantra and they say, Yeah, yeah, sure, you love Shakti, but who loves me? (laughs) Like, it's not good enough to love Shakti. You have to love me. Isn't that a direct manifestation of the ego? Because loving Shakti, automatically you love the feminine and you love its particular manifestations. You cannot say, I love the ocean, but the waves make me sick. The ocean has waves. If you love the ocean indeed, you are charmed by its waves under all the forms and the aspects where they are. This is the truth behind transfiguration. That every man is that, every woman is that, And we have a sort of limitation. Sometimes to open your mind and see the big picture hurts. 
It's like there is too much light. And then people love to live a small life in a cup of tea. Oh, these are my friends, these are my enemies, this is my life. Yeah, yeah, yesterday you didn't pay attention to me and you didn't say hello on the street. And No, like people's life, somebody says, but you know what happened yesterday. Yesterday I was coming from a meeting where I had been in a state of samadhi and I was walking on the street like I was knocked out. So I didn't see only you. I didn't see anybody on the street. I was in a... That doesn't matter for the small human being. The small human being says, yeah, but you didn't say hello. You know, it's like, there is no big picture. There is no, like, wait a second, we live in a much bigger reality and there can be other factors which deeply surpass this or that behavior or limitation. And that is why, of course, some people can have difficulties in making this transcendence. And this transcendence is about the crossing from personal to impersonal. Usually in terms of yoga for you to make the connection, this happens at the level of Vishuddha Chakra. And because of this, if you have a severe blockage on Vishuddha Chakra, you cannot transfigure beyond a certain... You can look kindly upon a man and say, this man is nice. I want this man to be nice. Yeah, this man is masculine. Yeah, every person is beautiful, aren't they? All this Vadistanistic New Age stuff. You always find an excuse to say, yeah, yeah, this person is lovely and so on. But you never can go beyond the person. You are still stuck to the person. To be able to go from personal to impersonal, to transpersonal, you have to go over this bump. That is also why, and this is not a sexism, it's just a consequence of some things, because history shows that women generally have more problems with Vishuddha Chakra than men, it's generally more easy for a man to love a woman in a transpersonal way than for a woman to love a man. Like the woman says, yeah, right, sure, my Oliver or my Oscar is Shiva. I still need a man in the house, you know, to protect me, to do the small things, to do the... You know, like, I love him as Shiva, but he better be really personal as well, because I can't live... Saint Catherine, she could live Jesus, who was belonging to the whole universe, to the whole world. Saint Therese of Lisieux was in love with Jesus as well. And she was not jealous at Saint Catherine, who loved also Jesus... 18 centuries or something before her. Everybody has the right to love Jesus, and I love Jesus, and she thought Jesus was her man. This is a love which goes above Anahata Chakra. It's not simply a personal love. It's a love which goes to the causal body. It's a love which goes transpersonal. It goes to principles, to archetypes. It's a love of the divine principles. And that is why, of course... It depends on many, many things, how far you can reach in your transfiguration. Of course, it can be, on the other hand, that a man traditionally has a lot of blockages in Muladhara Chakra, and the man cannot whip up the energy. The man is willing to say, I'm willing to look at my woman as she is olive, and she is at the same time Kali herself, or Shakti, or Matangi, or whoever, whatever aspect of the Shakti he chooses there, but at the same time, the man finds himself pretty dry. Like he cannot go into a frenzy. He cannot vibrate like Ramakrishna. He cannot shed tears. He cannot be whip up this into a madness, into a hysteria, because he has blockages on Muladhara, and his Kundalini is not moving strongly, and he doesn't have enough vitality, and therefore he is a little bit more dull, more flat. And that is why, remember that it's not that women have more obstacles than the men in the transfiguration, but especially this point on Vishuddha Chakra, if it is touched, if it is concerned, then we find there some limitations. That's why transfiguration is an amazing practice. You have to learn to practice transfiguration because that's the success in Tantra. Anybody here who does a 50% at least successful transfiguration, you are in the zone. You are on your way to Samadhi. You are on your way to the rising of Kundalini to the high chakras. You are on your way to a tantric accomplishment, to a tantric realization, because you actually are able to transfigure. 
That's the story about transfiguration and it should be learned, it should be tried constantly. It's true that nobody does yoga 24-7. Again, maybe Jesus was 24-7 in the divine mode. Other spiritual beings belonging to this planet, they get tired, they lose the momentum sometimes, now they are full on in a spiritual state. Now they are a bit burned out and they need to rest and to eat and to sleep and to regenerate their energy. But remember, so nobody is in full transfiguration all the time, but at least there are privileged moments where you do it and when you choose to do it. And the more you do it, the more you start having the feel of it, the more you start seeing through, the more you start having glimpses. Lots of meditation helps. Lots of kundalini yoga helps. Lots of sublimation of the energy to the high chakras helps. Lots of work with symbols and other props like this helps. Lots of poetry, lots of art, lots of painting, lots of sculpture, lots of symbolism and other fine arts helps. And remember therefore that you can favor this transfiguration. You can do it more and more and you learn how to do this. The more you do it, the better you get at it. The transfiguration is inevitable in Tantra because without it, this final result is not being reached. That's why, again, the Shakti groups and the Vira groups sometimes encourage it. They do some practices of transfiguration these are not invented by us, they come from the history of Tantra, and uh, therefore, it is a way of practicing it. At home, you can hold hands, look in each other's eyes, or close your eyes, and use the eyes of your heart, of your mind, and in the mind's eye, you can transfigure. This is a pure, and in a certain way, a vertical spiritual practice. Every time you do a bit of transfiguration, you refine your spirit. You start seeing beyond the appearances. Because when you look beyond the veil of appearances, that's what the truth is. We are the ocean, not the wave. The wave is transient, and it's okay if the wave is considered, respected, uh, or at least acknowledged. Oh, there is this wonderful wave, or there is simply this wave. Sometimes people are not wonderful, remember, some people, sometimes there are people who are terrible. Even they are a wave. Of course, you don't want to be on their side of reality. Like nobody says that if you, for example, are terrible as a man, as a woman, you should be respected as a deity. You can be respected as a terrible deity, as a grim deity. There, sure, the respect is there, but I don't want it. You can have a powerful emotion... When you smash your finger, put your finger on a table, take a hammer, blow it into small smithereens. Isn't that produces a very strong emotion? So do we love emotions? Yes. Even negative ones? Sure. We acknowledge that a powerful emotion can get you enlightened. For example, Eckhart Tolle claims he got enlightened because of too much depression. So even depression can be a gift from God. But who wants to be depressed? Who wants to blow their finger? Like, my path in yoga is that every one month I blow one more finger. Then I live one month on that suffering, and when my finger is cut off, then I go to the next. And I hope that when I, by the time I finish my fingers and my toes, I'm going to reach nirvana. Who wants that yoga? Only some self-destructive masochist would like to do spirituality in that way. And that's why, remember transfiguration, don't take it silly. Like, oh, Ramakrishna was worshipping the prostitutes. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that he learned yoga from them. It doesn't mean that he simply said, oh, come in my house and start teaching my pupils. Because he realized that those were a manifestation of the goddess, but at the same time the wave had its characteristics, even when its characteristics mean limitation or other things. So don't take it the New Age way, because the transfiguration doesn't mean a sugar-coated, pink, always pink, rosy type of thing, which always works. And even with transfiguration, sometimes the aspects of life are sometimes 
wrathful, sometimes peaceful, sometimes painful, sometimes not, the important thing is, of course, to recognize the divinity in all those aspects of life. Transfiguration is a wonderful practice, and we are coming now close to the end of the first half of this lecture. In the second half, if you'll want, we'll have some talks, questions and answers, free talks. If there is nothing for you to comment on transfiguration, though this was the theme of the evening, because I brought it up due to the need of some of you who have not joined Tantra One workshops to understand what transfiguration is, then, of course, you can have other questions. Remember that the meetings, the Q&As from the second month and up, are for the pupils of the school to be able to ask some questions also about various subjects in spirituality and their practice. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.